Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my pleasure to have as my guest, April Feet. She's the author of the timely and newly released The Sacred Pulse, Holy Rhythms for Overwhelmed Souls. April is a pastor, writer, and a blogger. She co-pastors the First Presbyterian Church in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. And in this interview, we're going to talk about what it's like to be a co-pastor in addition to taking a really deep dive into this important new book on spiritual formation. Uh, And she uses this metaphor of pulse as though part of when you're learning to play a musical instrument, and be part of a band, you have to hear the beat and align yourself with the rhythm. In this book, she takes a deep dive into what that looks like spiritually. I found this conversation really meaningful uh, personally, and I hope that it serves you powerfully. Let's get to the conversation. Hi, April. Welcome to the show. It's so great to have you today. Thanks for inviting me on, Brian. I'm so excited. Your book just released this week, The Sacred Pulse, uh, Holy Rhythms for the Overwhelmed, for overwhelmed Souls. I, I love that. And uh, just to introduce yourself a little bit, can you talk about your spiritual journey so far that's led you up to this point where you're, you're co-pastoring and now you've, you've produced uh, this, the, the book, The Sacred Pulse? I would love to talk about that. Um, my, my story of calling and my journey with God began really early in my life. When I was five years old, I remember telling my parents I wanted to ask Jesus into my heart. So um, my, my journey with God began, began very early. And then in about middle school, um, there were some people in our neighborhood that had an outdoor backyard Bible club every summer. And their kids would play music. And it was just a fun time of sitting on their lawn and hearing stories. And every year they would spotlight different missionaries. And they had these beautiful picture books. And they would talk about um, people who had gone and shared about Jesus with others. And I remember sitting on their grass thinking, that's what I want to do when I get older. I want to tell other people about Jesus. And then I went to Wheaton College. And when I was sitting in my theology of culture class, I wrote down in my journal, we were required to keep a journal for class. I wrote down, I felt called into ministry today. I don't know what that means, but I'm, I'm excited to see where this leads. And it was not very long after that, that I met my husband. And when we first met, he said, um, before we really start dating seriously, you need to know that I feel called to be a pastor and not everyone is okay with that they don't want that for their life. And so he offered that to me and I thought it was great. I was so excited for him, but I didn't know anything about co-pastoring. And so I thought, well, I'll finish up in college. He'll go to seminary. I'll find a job. I'll figure out what calling looks like for me. And we ended up visiting a seminary together. And while we were in class, I said to him, it's a shame we can't both go here. And then we met with the admissions director and he said, have you ever heard of co-ministry? And we said, no. And he said, I really think you should consider that. And so we, we decided we would take seminary one semester at a time. We would try one semester together and find an internship as a, a couple and see how it went. And if it didn't work, he'd continue on in seminary. I'd look for work in the area and it just one semester led to another and um, we finished seminary together, and we've been co-pastoring for 14 years. Wow. So, so you, so that's actually 
so have you and you've been have you been at the same church for 14 years or have you used this exact model a couple different times our first our first call we were co-pastors for eight years wow and then we've been in western nebraska for six years now and it's amazing to me to watch how our ministry changes as a clergy couple as our kids have gotten older when we first started as a clergy couple we had a three-week-old newborn. Wow. So we were learning how to be parents and learning how to be pastors and how to work together all at once. And so there was a lot of change, a lot of communication about what works and what doesn't. And now I've my, now that child that was three weeks old when we began, he's 14 now. And so the way that we minister now is very different than it was before. We share things differently. We've discovered our different areas of giftedness. And it's really been it's really been an amazing journey. Yeah, can, I love this this model. I mean, we have uh, uh, lots of uh, women pastors that are serving churches. We also have people listening here that may have a, a a woman as their pastor at some point, and sometimes that's an adjustment. Even in twenty twenty one, as as you know, and all the books that have been published about the struggles within within different denominations. Again, we have a lot of Methodists, and that's. And so we've been, United Methodists have had women, female pastors for a long time, though there's still struggles. Like I even, person I work with actually church rejected them after the, we have bishops that send people and they wouldn't take the purr because she was female. So like, what are, what are some of the lessons that maybe you've learned about this model of being a clergy couple about giftedness and, and how do you, have you, yeah, how, how, how do you present that um, in a way that, um, you know, that actually helps congregations and like, what have you learned about ministry? Maybe that you wouldn't have, if you were a solo pastor, or if you mm-hmm. were just, or just your husband was the pastor, what do you think you've learned yeah. about God's grace and ministry from the model that, that you've two been able to, to do this, I, you know, I think it's I think it's awesome. So two two churches in a row. That's that's really uh, again that's yeah. remarkable. Yeah. Thank you. Our first church um, had never had a female minister or a female elder. They'd never had a woman preach from the pulpit when they called my husband and I to come serve them. Wow. And so they took a risk on us. Yeah. They didn't know what this model would look like, and they gave us a lot of grace. But something that my husband Jeff and I Jeff and I have discovered is that. When you are co-pastoring, you are each more able to serve out of your areas of giftedness, but it's also an invitation to grow in your areas of weakness. So there are areas of, for example, my husband is amazing at stewardship. He's amazing at budgeting, at helping congregations think about growing in stewardship, and that is not my area. But in watching him work with that, and being a partner to him as he works in that, I find myself growing and learning and better able to do more. Whereas if I was a solo minister, I'd have to do those things, but I would not be very good at them. And I would struggle to find ways to grow. I would have to be very intentional to seek out conferences or books or other people. Um, so it's cool that I have that built right into the, to our ministry model that I can ask him for help with that. Um, and vice versa, he and I talk a lot about how he inspires me with stewardship and he finds inspiration in the way that I teach classes. Um, spiritual discipleship is a huge area of um, strength for me. Um, I've always felt called to teach in some way. And, and as I've grown in that, um, Jeff says, you know, he, he likes to watch and learn and grow in that as well. So that's been really cool. Um, an area of grace 
that we've discovered is that um, in ministry, there are often sensitive health concerns or family issues that maybe someone doesn't feel comfortable speaking to a male minister about. I've had so many women share with me struggles of mental health um, or um, physical health issues that they were uncomfortable sharing with a male pastor. And they said, I've carried this burden with me for 30 years and I feel like I can finally tell someone. Wow. And so that's been a huge gift for me. But Jeff has found the same thing. He's been able to enter into spaces that I would never be able, you know, I could maybe go and try and people would be kind to me. Um, but he's able to minister uniquely in those situations. And so I think it's a real blessing for congregations to have that um, ability to go to someone. And not just, it's not even just gender related. Um, there might be a personality um, where you connect better with one personality over another. My husband's very, very introverted and very introspective. I'm an introvert also, but I'm a little bit more outgoing. Mm -hmm. And so he's able to have these deep, thoughtful conversations one-on-one -on -one with people um, that I just so admire that. So good. It's good. Well, thank you for letting me take that early detour here because I want to, because I just, I, I love it. I just loved everything you said. I think it's going to be really helpful for everybody listening. But I, let, let's talk about the Sacred Pulse. Uh, I mean, I really love the book um, and I love the metaphor because I was wondering, like, what's the Sacred Pulse when I, you know, I, I saw the title and I, you know, the subtitle is pretty clear Holy Rhythms for Overwhelmed Souls, right? So that's, oh. so I got that. But then what's the pulse? And then, you know, your opening, you know, Chuck DeGroat wrote a really nice forward for you, but then your opening yeah. metaphor is, you have to, if you want to learn how to play a musical instrument, you have to understand the beat. And I'm like, oh, I love that. So, you know, and, and you know, we talk a lot about, you know, being present or, um, you know, rhythms, rule of life, but you got this thing on the pulse. So yeah. I'm always interested in creative people. How did you get, where did that metaphor, I mean, come from other than obviously you're thinking about music, but like, where did that connect with you that like, wow, this is a way to present um, really a, you know, a liturgy for life, but with this metaphor that's, you know, as soon as you read it, like, wow, that's exactly right. I got to get the yeah. beat so I can live. So thank you for that. But can you like back us up and kind of process how that came to you, whether it was an epiphany sure. or how that worked out for you? Sure. Well, most ideas are not epiphanies. I think you sit, you sit down in the discipline of writing and occasionally good things come out. Um, but a little background on me that might help um, listeners to understand, I began playing the clarinet when I was in fifth grade, and I played the clarinet all the way through college and was a clarinet performance major until some job problems necessitated me changing my major. Mm -hmm. And so music and pulse and rhythm has always been something that has deeply resonated with me. The idea for this book, though, um, I was going through a season of life where I just felt very depleted. And I was trying to figure out why am I depleted? I'm doing these things I love. I'm enjoying all the things that I'm participating in. Where is this heaviness coming from? And all at once, it was like a lightning bolt. I thought I'm not marching in step with the beat of God. Wow. I, I need to get back to that. And my initial working title for my book was Reclaiming the Rhythm. Wow. Um, yeah. you know, rediscovering that beat we already know. Mm. When we were born, somehow that, that rhythm, because we're created in God's image, is a part of us in some way. And then we spend our whole adult lives 
losing out on that and trying to find it again. And so that's where that initial idea came from. And then with my musical background, it just made sense to me for each chapter to connect musically, um, like the crescendo of celebration, how that can swell inside our spirits. Um, that just connected and resonated with me in a meaningful way. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and I, yeah, that's actually, you know, I wasn't even thinking about it because I was thinking about, I love how you structured the whole book. You have these four different um, spaces um, that we'll, we'll talk about. I don't want to give the whole book away so people can read it, but I, I just love the whole organization. And now I actually, yeah, because, you know, it's funny when I was reading, I was like, you saved all of the kind of celebratory things for the end, but that was completely on purpose now. So again, that, yeah. that was, yeah, so I, I, I like that. And you start with time, which maybe that's, uh, so could you talk a little bit why you organized the book the way that you did? And, um, and I think that's a fair place to, to, to say, and maybe even talk about what's an overwhelmed soul. And, and then why would time be the first thing that you have to deal with if you're an overwhelmed soul? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so an overwhelmed soul. And, you know, I at first resisted the use of that word soul because I don't think we're these disembodied spirits. That, right, right, right. Um, that, you know, our physical self's over here and our spiritual self's over there. But I think there's something deeply profound about recognizing when you're not just tired, you're tired all the way to your soul. Yeah. Um, you're overwhelmed by the noise or the chaos, or the expectations, or whatever it is. And so the first place that it made sense for me to start was with that basic unit of measurement of time. Because no matter how much we want to get away from the daily grind, or we want to push it all away and just embrace and encounter the world as God gives it to us, we live in a world that is really marching and beat with the step of time. Yeah. We punch in and out of our jobs. Um, I've got Google Calendar on my phone that reminds me 30 minutes before I have to be somewhere. And it tells me how many minutes it will take me to get there, you know, with the current flow of traffic. Everything is time oriented in our society. And so how can I be a faithful person and live in a way that gives life and that makes meaning when I'm within this confines of time, even though God transcends time, you know, God is bigger than our concept of time and yet we have to live within it. And what does that look like? And I've always been really intrigued by what life was like before the invention of artificial light. When it gets dark, you have to go to bed because you're tired. Um, when the sun comes up, you wake up because either the light filters in your windows or your roosters crow and wake you up or or your cows need milking or whatever it is and I don't want to romanticize that time because people lived hard lives and I'm very thankful for the creature comforts that we have but in moving away from that natural rhythm of light we've created a new rhythm in which I can work all day long and never know the difference if I go into a room with no windows, I can fool myself into thinking it's daytime all day long. Um, and so to me, that just seemed a natural place to start. How do I encounter my day in a world that moves in step with the clock, but acknowledging that I am more than my productivity? Um, yeah, I don't know if that gets to the heart of your question. No, it really does. And, you know, and I also noticed, you know, you said when you wrote this out of a 
space where you were feeling overwhelmed as a pastor. Yeah. And I know a lot of people that are, are listening. I mean, one, one of the ironies of, um, uh, of ministry is, um, and, and I have, I do, I coach a lot of, of pastors and, uh, you know, and, and these are hard lessons I've learned myself is that the, the problem with being a pastor, a lot of times is that everything you do at some level can be fit into your mission. And you can even yeah. say that everything you do is good. But if you pile up a gazillion good things into your life, it might as well be a gazillion bad things because it sort of yes. chokes you slowly, right? So, uh, absolutely. And, and I love the, you know, like you follow that right up with the seasons, right? And even with your time thing, like it's winter time. Well, I live in Orlando, yeah. so it never really is. But I mean, if you're up north <laughs> in any place, it's well, the days are shorter, which goes back to your time thing, right? Yes. So, so basically, if there's no electricity, human beings, even if I live in Orlando, it's still getting dark. Yeah. I have shorter days, right? And and we've also lost the sense of of seasons, and you know, and just to like the let the readers know. I mean, your book, every chapter just has a, a metaphor that's drawn out of just actual life that you draw a spiritual truth around and, and unpack that. And you see, so you go from like time in general to this whole thing about seasons, and you use like a garden. And I love, I mean, I love, I love garden metaphor, and Jesus yeah. uses those things all the time. And there's just so much to learn if you just look around and look at yeah. nature. Right. And I, I appreciate that about your book. Mm -hmm. So like, what, have, what have you learned about patience? I mean, even writing the book, mm -hmm. now you're in the marketing mode. So, yeah. I, <laughs> so, so how, what do you learn about patience that as a pastor, uh, patience as just a person when we literally live, like, I don't know if it was that chapter or a different one you talk about, you know, you just push a button um, and you can just buy something versus having yeah. to go, well, that's the shopping chapter later on, but, um, yeah. but, but, but patience, right? So you have the seasons, what, 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 what's the lesson there about um, patience and how has that helped you to be a better pastor, better wife, mm -hmm. um, you know, better mother, all those kind of things? Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful question. Um, I guess I would begin with when I wrote this book, Yeah, I had written two chapters and then COVID hit and all of a sudden the world had fundamentally changed. And I found myself having to throw all my creative energy into figuring out how does my congregation live stream? How do I keep in touch with people that aren't digitally connected? Um, I'm now homeschooling my children, you know, all of those things. And I became very impatient with myself because when I would sit down to write on my book, I didn't have anything left. And I would just stare at the blank screen or the blank page and think, oh, it's never gonna happen. This book's never gonna be written and feeling that sense of impatience and urgency. And the gardening chapter in particular reminded me that in the winter, things go dormant. Yeah. And it's not that they have died, or that they've given up, but they need that before they can grow. And so I've had to learn that discipline of waiting for things to be in their proper time. Yeah, talk about the garlic. The rest of my life. Yeah. yeah talk, I love the garlic because I don't, I mean, I've had <laughs> gardens, but I didn't, I never tried to grow garlic. And so I thought the garlic was just a fantastic illustration of, of that yeah. point. Could you just, I mean, I don't want to give your whole book away, but I think you sure. could share that garlic illustration about how kind of the counterintuitive way it grows with the season. Yeah. Garlic is fascinating because you can plant it in the spring and it'll grow, but you won't get the nice full heads of garlic like what you buy in the grocery store. They do the very best when you plant them 
close to the first frost, which in our part of the country is usually around the first part of October. Yeah. And so you plant the cloves of garlic and you cover over them. I use dry grass clippings. Some people use straw or hay or whatever. Um, and depending on the weather, sometimes those green shoots will start to grow even through the snow. They use that time of cold as a way to propel them upward. And it's really, it's really fascinating. And then if you grow the hard nut garlic and they make their curly Q scapes and all of the wonderful things that garlic does, um, it just grows and changes and adapts based on the seasons. And then you, um, in the hot part of summer, harvest them and dry and cure the heads and they will last you then all winter, save some back and plant those. Um, so that they can continue that process throughout the winter. But it's fascinating to me that that's their growth time. And I think that's true really for most plants. We just don't observe it. No, that's good. And, and, and what would you say for yourself? Because again, again, you just have all these, every chapter has a great metaphor that's taken. You've got the handcrafting uh, chapter. Okay. <laughs> I love that. Um, or even the free time when you talk about the snow day, just an unexpected block of time. So yeah. what do you think, how did you get the eyes to just kind of walk? Through? I mean, I just kind of picture you, like I walk around my neighborhood and just try to look at something different. I go different directions so I can see things from different angles. But like, what do you think? What, is, what does a person need to cultivate? I mean, and I'm really asking about yourself so that you can actually see kind of the obvious lessons that are there that everybody misses. Oh, you know, I'm not really sure how it developed in me, but I will tell you how I've watched it develop in my children. Yeah. It, it begins by being courageous enough to ask a question because I think we all have them. I love that. Yeah. But maybe we're embarrassed yeah. because we think we should already know something. Uh, but being courageous enough to ask, why is it that way? Why, why does that particular bird make that song? And then to look into it a little bit, um, I discovered that chickadees have a very complicated pattern of bird calls. They have certain ones that they use when they're in groups of female or male only. They have some that warn them of predators. And the more intensely they make a call, it tells you how large is the predator and how real is the danger. Um, but it all starts by being attentive and being willing to ask the question. And sometimes it slows us down. So it is something that takes practice. Um, it's like a muscle that we strengthen. The more we ask the questions, the more we pay attention, the more we'll begin to notice new and other things. And if it's really outside of our comfort zone to do that, I think one of the best ways to begin is to find a book by someone who does that well and to read it slowly and to savor it because their observations will inspire our own. That's real. That's, that's, that's so good. And so how would a person know that's listening to this and maybe again this may be an obvious question but it's just like how would a person know that they were overwhelmed and then mm. once they discovered that what would be the first steps in finding rest and finding the beat yeah. again yeah oh i love that question um so i think being overwhelmed can look different for different people for me, it looked like a growing cynicism. Mm. Um, as I would try to engage in different activities, there would be that undercurrent of why bother or 
that's not going to turn out the way I want it to anyway, or just some kind of self-defeating narrative that's always second guessing the thing that's in front of you. So it, it looked like that for me. Um, for other people I've talked to, it's just a sense of weariness, not really a physical exhaustion, but, but just feeling depleted, like the well is dry, um, like you don't have any words, maybe you don't know how to pray. Um, just, just that persistent feeling that things are not as they are supposed to be. Um, and sometimes it takes hitting a wall before we realize that that's where we are. Um, other times, maybe we have a trusted person in our life who can say, you know, you just seem like things are really hard right now. Wow. Um, and it, you know, maybe that helps shake us out of our stupor and we realize what's going on. But I think it's hard to know until we're deep into it. And then we wonder, how did I get here? And, and so if you, once you find yourself at that place, and again, your book comes out at a, a perfect time. And in a way, even like when I wrote the Centering Prayer book, I, I had already had it finished and then COVID hits. And then all yeah. of a sudden, these very things that you know we're writing about are almost the antidote for what everybody, you know, kind yes. of feels like. So if you thought about even God's timing on when your books come out now that in a sense, like almost everybody listening here, even if you've had healthy rhythms, we all sort of fill out a whack just the yeah. way the life's been for the last, I guess, what is it? 20 months now or whatever, I lose yeah. track. But uh, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you think about uh, uh, like that? And then what's the message? What, what would you say Somebody's listening, like, yeah, I am really overwhelmed. I just feel lots of anxiety, all the cynical, all the different things that you're saying. Or my, I'm not feel like my kids are like driving me crazy. Just all the things that are signals that um, I'm out yeah. of wax. Like, what? What's a couple steps back? I mean, if you're just going to give somebody like, you know, what's an? Uh, they're already overwhelmed. So, I, <laughs> so what would be the simplest step that right. a person could take to begin to open themselves up more to the wonderful abundant world that God has given us to live in in his yeah. grace. Yeah. Yeah. So as to that first question, um, when COVID really began shutting everything down, I took a look at my first two chapters and realized they were completely wrong. Mm. Um, I was looking at, at my problem in a very superficial way. Yeah. Um, and the same with the chapter on eating. I thought, if I just eat healthy home cooked meals, that's the solution. But what happens when eating at a restaurant is not an option and yet you still find yourself distracted when you're sitting at the dinner table or you find yourself unwilling to sit down at the dinner table because you don't wanna be alone with your thoughts. So you turn the television on instead. Um, I had to dig deep and ask myself, what's really underneath all of that? In this COVID world where I can't do the things I used to do, why am I still having these problems? Yeah, yeah. And so in that way, writing this book was really a gift to myself and almost a way of me putting together a guidebook for what I hoped my life would look like on the other side. And so it just thrills me that other people have said that this book is meeting them in that place too. And so in that way, it does feel like the timing is right for, for this piece. Um, as far as what can an overwhelmed person do I think the most important thing is to delete the idea of needing to do something. Good. Um, one of the things that I discovered about myself, and I kind of knew it already, but, but writing the book helped me put it into words, was that the reason I was making myself busy was because deep down inside, I had this idea that I was not 
fundamentally worthy of being loved if I stopped doing all of the things. Yes. And so for the overwhelmed person, that would be my charge is to allow yourself to receive the love of God who isn't expecting you to do all of those things, who isn't looking with disapproval at you when you're missing a deadline or you yelled at your kids because you lost your temper or whatever it is. God looks at us and loves us and wants wholeness for us. So I think fundamentally that's it is just allowing ourselves into that space. And, and, as, and as you, as you know, I mean, you just nail, I mean, I, I, that's, that's to me, like I consider part of my entire ministry to try to help. I call, I have this thing I call the unholy Trinity, fear, guilt, shame. And I mean, yeah. obviously you're talking about shame and guilt goes right with it. It's that I'm just not yep. good enough. And so I have to do more than I don't do enough. And I feel terrible that I'm afraid <laughs> it just, yes, it all yes. spins around. So, I mean, I think you absolutely nailed it there, but I mean, you know, I, I mean, I think it's like, you can define the problem that I'm not enough. And we can tell yeah. people, I mean, we grew up singing, you grew up in the church and you know, I, I did backyard Bible club too. I, I, I love that. Yeah. I, I still, it was so fun, <laughs> but, but, you know, you grew up singing, to, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, and all, all that kind of stuff. It was ought to burrow it right into your heart from the beginning yeah. that you're enough because God loves you. But, you know, in our culture, I mean, I even say in my own life, um, um, I mean, I would just, I was, you know, sharing with you before we got on here, I've had this remarkable two weeks and I'm not totally ready to talk about it publicly because I want to see if it actually sticks. But I have to say that mm. I felt like my heart got healed and I thought it already was about some of that very shame stuff, but I just had this profound experience. And this mm. isn't about me today. It's about you, just about exactly what you just said. Yeah. And I'm 52 and I've been yeah. in church since I was five and I've been a pastor and a seminary professor, but that's been essentially the thing that's yeah. been my wound for what, you know, for a mm. long time. And again, it's been in my head. I could have told you I was enough probably when I was like 15 or whatever. And I'm, yeah. um, so it's easy to say that. And I'm not pushing you because yep. I mean, obviously, if it sure. was easy to fix, I'd have fixed it a long time ago. But so how, <laughs> how, how, how do you cultivate that? Again, it's one of those yeah. obvious truths. So how a person who's yeah. already overwhelmed that doesn't feel enough, what's how do you open yourself up in a way? It's, and it takes courage yes. on the chance that God's actually going to meet you and and you feel the love that he's had for you from all eternity, essentially. Right. Yes. So, yeah. Oh, that's, that's a fabulous question. And you're so right. I mean, it's, it's one thing to say, um, just open yourself up. Yeah. Um, but how do we do it? Um, for, for myself, I have been finding that, well, and this was something that was recommended to me by someone else too, but try to find 30 minutes in your day somewhere. And it doesn't mm. have to be all in a row, but, to do something that brings joy or that brings restoration. And sometimes it's as simple as taking a nap on the couch and then reminding yourself you don't need to feel guilty about that. Yeah, um, or on, on beautiful days, taking a walk around the neighborhood and inviting yourself to observe um, and maybe give yourself, if you're not someone who observation comes naturally for, Maybe give yourself a challenge. Let's observe three things on this walk today. And then if you have someone at home to share those with, share them. Here are some things I observed. If you live by yourself, you can write those things down. Um, and, and the more you do it, the more you'll begin to notice and make space for that. But I think we just have to find a way, whether it's the way we talk to ourselves or the people we surround ourselves with, to remind ourselves 
it's okay to rest. We need to take this time. I'm a better pastor, parent, um, spouse, individual, coworker, whatever it is, when I take this time and allow myself to be rejuvenated by God. That's really good. And, and I know that your last rhythm there where you do the rhythm of renewal, you have appreciation right at the top and then yeah. restoration. And then, uh, well, geez, I didn't write the last holy what, rhythms. Is that what the last chapter is? Is that right? Yeah. I only put holy yep. R on my note there. So. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. But, you know, I love the appreciation. I think you just, I love that even the way you just articulated that. Like a quote that I like is, um, I think I got this from a guy named Dan Sullivan, but it's whatever you appreciate, appreciates. And it's like, and, and you have wow. that whole thing about, I think in your study guide for that chapter, you just have go around and notice small things. Yes. And and it's, um, and you even said, I think earlier when just when you're walking, try to notice something you know different. I think that's just a powerful practice. And I think ironically, that is the way that it just kind of opens you up because you're just mm -hmm. reminded that this is a God that just does, I mean, all these little things around you. And then, hey, if God's doing that, wow, God might actually love me too, right? Yes. So it's, uh, you have to get out, but ironically, you have to open yourself up by getting away from yourself to allow God to do the work in you. Yeah. Yes. Again, I lo uh, love, the, I love the book. Um, uh, and so if, again, I love the title too. So like it, at what point, how would you know that you heard the beat? Mm. Well, well, in other words, think, let me, yeah, go ahead. You can answer it. I think you got, yeah, I think, yeah. I think we just know it in our souls. Yeah. I, I know that sounds like a cop out, but when my kids were little and they'd be really, really fussy, one thing that I would do is I would take their head and I would put it to my chest. Mm hmm and they would hear that heartbeat and they yeah. would quiet down. And I think that happens inside of us yeah. when we hear that holy rhythm, we can almost feel our shoulders lower and our bodies relax because we know that we're moving in the way that is right for us, that, that we were made for, and we know we're safe. Yeah, I love that. That's beautiful. That was beautiful. Yeah. yeah I can even see that in my head, my own oh, my daughter, even yeah, here in the heart. That's that's so good. That's really good. Yeah. So uh yeah, thank you for writing the sacred pulse, uh, holy rhythms for overwhelmed souls. It's available now. And and where's where's the best place for people to find that on Amazon, directly from your publisher? What are your recommendations for uh for picking up a copy? Sure. Um, now that the book's officially released, really, you can get it anywhere. I've had friends um, go to local bookstores and had it ordered in. It's available on Amazon, IndieBound, and on the Broadleaf Books website. That's good. And just to kind of wrap things up with some of the questions I like to ask all my guests, um, you know, you've written a book and uh, you've, mm -hmm. you've got this published, you just finished it, so we don't want to put all this pressure on you now. But, <laughs> but is, is there another book that you have in, in your heart, maybe? Or is there a book that maybe you're afraid to write that you mm -hmm. probably will at some point? What, what would be next for you, April? Yeah. So I've actually got two projects that I work on here and there. Um, one, one is kind of silly, um, but I find a lot of inspiration when I hang out with my chickens. So I'm <laughs> I'm writing a, a collection of reflections learned from the chicken coop, um, but also just exploring the, that idea of wholeness and what it looks like to live um, on the other side of a languishing time um, yeah. that we've all been through. So I've got just a couple projects, um, but that question about what I'm afraid to write, I really, I've thought about that. And I think the truth for me is that anytime I put my heart into something, I'm afraid to write it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but 
when you write it with courage and are faithful to it, there's so much grace that abounds. So I guess what am I afraid to write is whatever's in front of me at the moment. Um, but, but I still write with fear and trembling and hope God can use it. No, that's a, no, I absolutely love that answer. And I think that is, I mean, I think that's, um, that's why your book is as, as, as good as it actually is because the whole thing, um, you know, I promised myself, again, this is about me, this is you, but I, I promised myself a couple of years ago, I was never going to publish anything ever again that I wasn't 100% in on. Not that any of my stuff's ever been inauthentic at all, but I'm a Bible professor, so it's easy yeah. to write about the Bible, right? I mean, I got a PhD, yeah. still got to put yourself in there, but like the Centering Prayer book terrified me because I put a lot mm -hmm. about my own personal self in that. And yeah. that was, and that was the best project, the most enjoyable project in that that I've ever done. And so I think the, the very way you just phrased that, I, I absolutely love that. If you're almost not a little bit afraid, yeah. you're probably not fully invested in it enough to do that. So, so thank you for that yes. answer. I love that. That's really good. Yeah. I mean, every time I click publish on a blog post or something, there's that moment of fear and trembling and putting myself into the world. And I think that's healthy. Yeah, it's good. It's really good. So for you, I mean, now you, you know, now you have the irony of marketing a book on trying to chill out and be con yes. connected to the pulse, right? So, so what, <laughs> I just think it's funny because that's what my book is about too. Yes. So. Um, so how do you keep yourself grounded and empowered? Because obviously you, know, you have a family, you're a pastor, and now you're, 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 you're like on podcasts like mine, you're doing the, the work of yeah. promoting. Which so, so how do you keep yourself grounded for the kingdom work that you've been called to do, April? That's excellent. Um, I think I've been having to work really strategically to not put the pressure on myself. And it's hard not to. Yeah. My my administrative assistant at my church is amazing for that. She'll say, April, do you really need one more thing today? Um, and I think, you know, no, I don't. Um, and so it helps to have her to keep me in check with that a little bit. But, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know that I'm very good at it. I'm still work, working at it. Um, but I've got, my two kids are 14 and 12 and they're pretty honest too. They'll say, Hey mom, we're not seeing enough of you. Or, um, you seem pretty stressed out. Let's watch a movie or something like that. And, and so being able to have people that, that look out for you in that way is good. Okay, good, good. Are there any specific spiritual practices that you try to do, um, daily? Do you have any contemplative practices? I mean, obviously you read the yeah. Bible and pray and, uh, but I mean, like, do you have like a, yeah. like a, a way that you've kind of lay your life out that, that helps you as well? Yeah, I do. Um, inspired by, um, Tish Harrison Warren's book, Liturgy of the Ordinary. I became a person who makes my bed every morning. Oh, cool. And, um, while I make the bed, I, thank God for allowing me to complete one thing that day and ask God to order my steps after that. And that has been a, a profoundly centering way for me to begin my day um, with that clean slate and new. Um, yeah, my mother would love that too. She always had me make my bed as a kid and then I rebelled against it for about 20 years. So I, I've come back home, mom. Um, so that's <laughs> that's one way that, that I um, I order my day. I also try to end my evenings by reading um, scripture. And I also have, I have an app on my phone. So ironically, I don't like phones in the bedroom, but I have an app on my phone that's got daily readings that I will read that and then put the phone away so that it's not in my room and, um, and try to orient myself that way. But that's been really helpful for me. I also recently read um, Jennifer Grant's book, Dimming the Day. And it is 
quiet reflections, evening meditations to inspire a quieted spirit. Um, and her illustrations are almost all from the natural world, the redwoods in California, the way that forests leave gaps between the treetops, those kinds of things. And so reading things like that, in addition to my Bible reading, helps me drift off to sleep with those calming and beautiful images in my mind. And so that's something that, that I have been doing as well. I love that. I love that. So now that here's the hard question for a writer, for a person that's got multiple degrees. Um, so <laughs> outside of the Bible, like what have been two or to three books mm -hmm. that have really shaped you? And maybe they're the ones you just named, but like if you're going to look sure. over your life, what have been like two or the three books that have really impacted you outside of the Bible itself? Sure. Um, I think that, that my answer to that question would be different depending on when you asked, asked me. But Today, I would say that Lisa Sharon Harper's book, The Very, Go Very Good Gospel, okay. is one that continues to have a profound impact on me. Um, she writes about the Hebrew concept of shalom is not just peace, but it is wholeness between the relationships between all things. Mm, yeah. And as I think about that, that helps me every single day as I think about what it looks like to live with wholeness and shalom in my own life. So that's one. Um, and then another book that I read a couple of years ago by Lisa Deem, it's called 3000 Miles to Jesus. And I did not expect to be as moved by this book as I was because it comes at, um, at life from the perspective of historical pilgrimages. Oh, cool. But she connects historical pilgrims, spiritual pilgrims to the spiritual pilgrimage we each take every day in our journey with God. Mm -hmm. And so I found that deeply moving about the way that we encounter surprises, how we, you know, we walk out the door with nothing but our belt, you know, as, as the disciples did in our pilgrimage and what that looks like. And so that's been profoundly moving to me as well. Okay. Well, thank you. And then just the last question, uh, again, we'll, we'll put all the links to your book and we asked you about where to find it, but if people want to connect with you, find out a little bit more, what's the best place to connect with you, whether it's social sure. media or on your website? My website is aprilfeet.com. That's F as in Frank, I-E-T. And then on Twitter, I'm at the same, the same at April Feet, and I'm the most active there. So if people want to engage with my writings or see what I'm up to, that's probably the best place. Well, thank you. And again, I want to thank you for writing just an outstanding book that can really serve uh, God's people. Um, good love the uh, love the writing. Excellent writer. It's easy to read. Great metaphors. Super helpful for our for our season. And thank you for answering God's call to ministry and uh, becoming the person that you are. And thank you for being my guest today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been delightful. Oh, good, good. Well, and everybody, thanks for coming along for the journey all the way to the end here. And until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be voices of hope in the world. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm truly grateful for my listeners. And if you found it helpful, would you consider sharing it with a friend? or leaving a review to help other people find it. I have links to all of the materials that were mentioned in the conversation. And I want to remind everyone also, if you're interested in checking out more from me, I have a new website, brianrussellphd.com. You can find all the different things that I do there. And 
I also want to mention again my book, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence Can Change Your Life. It's available as of September of 2021. Uh, thank you, everyone, and we will see you next week.